And what would you tell you? This is your question. This is my younger question. <laughs> what would I tell my younger self? First of all, I would say, stay away from toxic men. Well, have your fun, get rid of them, and then move on to the next one. That's what I would say, first of all. It's really important advice. But I'd also say to that young man who was embarking on his life and felt that that life had been taken away from him is that it hasn't. Enjoy every single moment. I'd also tell him, don't change a thing. Go through the journey because all of those things that you're gonna go through, all the hurt, all the anger, all the pain is gonna teach you lessons which are gonna bring you to the place that you are today. But all that pain and that hurt, there are also gonna be moments of absolute joy. And you have been given a gift. My name is Mark Thompson, and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist, and this is We Were Always Here, a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. I spent the last year having conversations with a number of people who you will hear throughout the series taking inspiration from the AIDS quilt as a metaphor and piecing together that rich tapestry of our experience. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history, moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us. Throughout the two years that I was in Uganda, I used to wake up and think, no, I don't want to live. This thing is hitting gay people and it's gonna hit black gay people more and there's no help for the black community and she screamed on the phone she said i can't lose another person i love and so i kept quiet you know from that moment on i couldn't tell anyone 2021 marks 40 years since the first cases of hiv or as it was known then, gay-related immune deficiency were identified. Approximately 76 million people have become infected with HIV since the start of the epidemic. Today, there are around 38 million people currently living with HIV all over the world. Tens of millions have died. We're living in an era now, against the backdrop of the coronavirus pandemic, where we are finally recognising the impact of health inequalities, of racism and structural sexism, homophobia, and how they have played a part in people not getting what they want or need around their own health. But these inequalities have always been here, and so have we. Thank <laughs> you.
for breakfast, toast and crab spread and a smoothie. Crab spread? Yeah, spread, yeah. Crab spread. It's like more suspense than all. Pate, crab pate, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. oh, sorry, yeah. Fish on toast. <laughs> Not quite a fish finger sandwich. So I was born and raised in Brixton, near the front line, the centre of the uprisings in 1981, 10 years before that I was born. And it was a fun, safe environment for me to, to grow up in. All my family, my friends were here. It was a really strong African-Caribbean community that I was part of. You know, so all my uncles were here, my aunts, my grandparents. I went to school here. Um, so it felt like home, you know, and this is pre gentrification this is pre the riots so it was a really lovely space to grow up in I was a kid that played out on the streets I had lots of friends I was always out I was really curious about the world acutely aware of stuff that was going on around me really in tune with that I remember really distinctly learning to tell the time I was about four years old we lived in a little flat and I'd learned to tell the time and I remember going door to door to neighbors houses to tell them that I could tell the time and to ask them, getting them to ask me what the time was so I could show them what the time was on my little Mickey Mouse watch I had. I remember it really clearly. Just wanted to be involved in the world. I was aware that I was different to other boys from a really early age. I, I knew, I, I didn't have the language to describe sexuality but I knew I had feelings for boys and I was really clear about that in my mind and when I got to secondary school when I went to an all-boys school so I was surrounded with even more boys then I went for a period of confusion and that had a lot to do with the way that I saw other boys talk about gay men or talk about homosexuality at school to be gay, to like boys, to be homosexual, whatever way you want to name it, was a mark against you. There was name calling of boys who were slightly effeminate or slightly different or who didn't fit into the mold. I remember there were a couple of teachers at school who were on reflection really clearly gay and they would get vitriol all of the time. And this was a rough school I went to where boys could get away with that because the teaching staff who weren't queer allowed it. Um, so you just knew that it was really, really unsafe. And I do remember being at school and there was one kid who was really effeminate for years and then decided to come to school kind of as a goth, the kind of Mark Ullman, soft cell kind of thing, and was run out of the school by the boys, run out of the school. So I knew then it was a deeply, deeply unsafe place for me to think or talk about my own sexual identity. Didn't necessarily hear homophobia at home because it just wasn't a conversation at all. Occasionally my dad would say something homophobic, but it wasn't like a running commentary in the house. My mum was worked in social work. I knew she was kind of cool around the gays, um, but it was still something I started to struggle with around the age of 13 when I started to have like big crushes on boys, like which would last for weeks. So I read, I found books about being young and gay. I found porn. You know, I would steal porn magazines. So that's how I kind of really understood my desire. And I had an incredibly close relationship with my head of year, really close. And I told her that I was gay 
and I had a crush on somebody at school and it was really doing my head in. I couldn't focus. And she did a little bit of digging and she gave me some numbers for, I think it was for a gay youth group, but also for Switchboard, the helpline. And told me if I ever needed to talk to them, the numbers were there. And so I just kept them in my in my wardrobe at home and it had like a little secret compartment behind a mirror. So I just slipped it in there and I kept my porn mags underneath the bottom drawer at the very back. So I had these two little secret cubby holes in my bedroom wardrobe. And yeah, it, they, it just stood there for ages and I never used it and that was it. And then it's sitting there, I leave school, you know, and I'm about to get on with my life and I meet my first boyfriend and we start dating. You know, it's all very young and he's only a couple of years older than me, all very lovely and romantic. And he invites me out to a party one night. He invites me to his friends, that's it. And I tell my mum I'm going out to some friends. She doesn't know I'm gay at this point. And I go out and I stay out all night and I come back in at about six, seven o'clock in the morning and go straight to my bedroom. And for some reason I go and look in the cupboard and I know the paper has been moved. I'm like, oh shit. Mum. Hello. Yeah, we can hear you. Where am I? I'm sitting in my living room in Ghana. I can see palm trees. I can see the sun has just gone in. So, okay. Mum, you froze there. I'm here. Okay. Do I switch it off? Hello? We can hear you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I always had some feeling that something special or something different about Mark. His father was very masculine um, and he wasn't like that. So I knew there was something that was different about Mark. And I think, you know, finding that card kind of triggered off what I felt as a mother, right? I didn't sleep that night. And when he came in on the Sunday afternoon, we had a conversation. And she says to me, is something wrong? Is there something you want to tell me? Deep breath. And I just tell her. And he told me he was gay. I'm gay. There's no, I think I am. There's no, I'm confused, I'm gay. And the words just fall out of my mouth. And in her reaction, if I remember, is okay. She's not mad. She doesn't show that she's mad at all, but I can see that she's clearly really upset about it. I think the bottom of my world fell because it was such a taboo subject within the black community. Although I had close friends, I couldn't speak to anyone. Um, I couldn't speak to his father about it because, you know, he just would not have understood. You know, you heard all these stories about young boys running away from home and ending up in Piccadilly Circus as rent boys and all of this sort of thing. And that was my biggest fear, that his father would have put him out of the house. And that was very frightening for me. And so, yeah, we eventually left the family home. And that was the main trigger of me leaving the family home to protect my son, not just from his father, but from the whole community as well. Because I knew that, you know, we he would have been ostracized. 
but I just did what I felt I wanted to do or had to do. And I think that was probably one of the happiest times myself, Mark and his sister had felt a sense of freedom because Mark could be who he wanted to be. I was out living my life, you know, from the ages of, you know, 17 onwards. You know, I, I, I found my tribe of other black gay men. I went to lots of parties. Um, I explored my, my sexuality and my sex as any young person should do. And then I just start going out. And then I find a place in Brixton called the Prince of Wales. I start to build up a small circle of friends and they take me to black gay parties. So I'm out. Every week, I'm either going to a gay pub, which is my local. I am that boy that gets drunk, you know, it's my thing. You know, I'm kind of known for like, don't put him in the car. Walk him around the block before you put him in the car, because I'm going to throw up, guarantee you, all the time. And it was fun, it was exciting, it was challenging. You know, there were heartbreaks and there were falling outs. Um, it's never all rosy, but you're young and you're wild. and. It's not talked about that there was a really vibrant black gay scene as well. We look back and we look at the archives and we see pictures of heaven, you know, with men with fans and shirts off and poppers. And that was lovely and that did exist. But the black gay scene came out of Brixton and different parts of London where there are larger black populations. You had one or two guys who are much older who would host parties in their homes. Um, and those would just be impromptu, ad hoc and they would be like Caribbean parties that my parents held or my grandparents threw, you know? So that was going on as well as a kind of a more commercial scene which accommodated, I think is a word, black and brown queers as well. They were not spaces set up for us, but the music policy or the DJs might be people of color, so then you would be welcomed. You know, and then that slowly grew. But I think it's important to note that we were a new, younger population. This is where the children of Windrush here. So it's new and emerging, but it was still really, really exciting. And for me as a young black gay man, it felt really safe. He was quite open about his sexuality. We also had, you know, quite a lot of his friends over who were, themselves in very similar positions but their families didn't accept them so they were quite isolated as well so most of our Christmases my house was filled with young black gay men so I was a real real wild kid but I studied and I was on a path to go to particular places in my life but it wasn't overly terrible but I knew the wider world was I just had to look at newspaper headlines. I just had to see what was going on with the riots and uprisings that were happening in the mid 80s, the homophobia that was in the newspapers on a regular basis. So I knew all of this existed in the world. And then one just treaded carefully and cautiously in that bigger world. So I'm looking at Him Magazine, a gay publication, which was kind of lifestyle, a bit like Gay Times today or Attitude Magazine. And then there is a story um, 
Gay Plague, Gay Cancer, just two of the misleading nicknames for the new alarming disease which has backs against the wall in American gay society. And um, in it is a cartoon drawing of a group of like young boys who, you know, you might describe them as twinks today in a test tube. And it's a really, really frightening picture. Um, the guys are kind of swimming around and the, the, the line in there is AIDS, gay death plot. So there's a box in here, which is, which reads, why has it happened? No one knows for certain. The possibilities are the current gay lifestyle, excessive promiscuity, abuses of the body, heavy sex, drugs, etc. Number two, a third part, you might have introduced it either accidentally or deliberately. Number three, the medical use of super drugs, not the store, many of which are now known to have catastrophic effects on the body's natural defences like flagel or to be cancer-inducing agents. Number four, it's a fluke, a new accident in the world's medical history, smallpox, polio, TB. As soon as one contagious disease is beaten, another one appears. Within the bigger world, reports of a disease had begun to circulate, primarily out of America. On the 5th of June, 1981, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's newsletter, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly, would make reference to five cases of an unusual pneumonia in Los Angeles called Pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, PCP, that had been found in five young, previously healthy gay men. At the same time, there were also reports of a group of men in New York and California with an unusually aggressive cancer named Carposis sarcoma that formed masses in the skin, in lymph nodes, in the mouth, or in other organs. It would be just under a month later, on the 3rd of July, when the New York Times would run a story with the headline, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. All right, so we're recording. Um, so the first thing I'm going to ask you to do, Graham, if you could just tell me your name and what you did and why you're here today. Okay, um, I'm Graham McCarrow. Uh, in the 1980s, I edited Capital Gay. Well, at first I worked at Gay News for a year. And then from uh, 1981, a friend, Michael Mason and I, we launched Capital Gay. Capital Gay was a free weekly newspaper published in London. McCarrow and Mason met while working at Gay News and designed Capital Gay as a complimentary publication. Gay News was a fabulous, well-respected fortnightly, and it took 11 days from the last word being written to it being in the hands of readers. And it was great on politics, and it was great on literature, and all sorts of other things. We wanted a newspaper that was faster. So we wanted a weekly newspaper with a 24-hour turnaround. So basically, if something bad happened on a Tuesday, we could tell people about it on a Thursday or Friday. There could be protests on a Saturday and Sunday. We also, it was a time when the gay community was growing enormously. And so you get heaven and you get bang, you get these really big clubs opening. 
And gay news was kind of preaching to the converted. And Michael and I, Michael and I both worked with gay news, and we both felt that there was a need to engage all these people that were coming out, to engage them with political ideas, to engage them with what the police were doing and what the government were doing and what the courts were doing and what the unions were doing or not doing and what the employers were doing and so on and so on. And also, at the same time, we wanted to say to the political movement, you say that you speak for the community. Well, this is the community. And so Capital Gay was there to say, look, if you speak for this community, you need to know about it. You need to know who they are and what they think and what they're interested in. And so we created a newspaper that was that had, wrote about drag queens and everything about gay life, you know, S&M, whatever it was, it was in there. And so was all the politics. Describe this community which is emerging and you're saying thousands more people are coming out. This is 10, 12 years after the decriminalisation. And so we've got this yep. vibrant gay community which is slowly just starting to explode into, into the scene, into the world. But then this virus appears. When do you first become aware of the virus? Okay, well, before it was a virus, um, it was called, the, or it had lots of different names. One of the early ones was the gay cancer. I, my memory tells me that I was at Gay News. Um, I've looked through old copies of Gay News and I've not been able to find. I thought there was a kind of little paragraph or something that we published in Gay News. Now, it's possible I wrote a little paragraph and it didn't get in, which tells you something as well. But certainly in uh, at Capital Gay in 1981, we started having tiny mentions that something was being seen in New York. In December 1981, the first cases of PCP were reported in people injecting drugs, and by the end of the year, 121 gay men had died from cases of severe immune deficiency. Federal health officials were concerned that tens of thousands more homosexual men may be silently affected and therefore vulnerable to what was now being reported as potentially grave ailments. But it wasn't until the 11th of May, 1982, that the panic surrounding HIV really started to amplify. The New York Times reported that a new homosexual disorder had worried health officials. It had now afflicted at least 335 people. We had a, a letter from a, an American that we published on the front page saying that he'd just been to London and other European cities and was horrified that nobody seemed to be aware of what was going on and, and <clears throat> weren't changing their behaviour or attitudes. So we put, and, and please warn your readers, so we put it on the front page because it was a very, you know, evocative, personal appeal. Please, please focus on what's happening. In September 1982, the Centers for Disease Control used the term AIDS, which stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome for the first time. Cases started to be reported in a number of European countries, as well as in Uganda, where doctors were reporting cases of a new fatal wasting disease locally known as SLIM. It was also creeping into the UK consciousness and then in November uh, of that year, 1982, we reported that 
um, Terry Higgins and, and one other guy had died. And those were the first two cases and the first two deaths. And the headline was US disease hits London, which, which tells you kind of something of the mentality. It was seen as a American disease and the report was now saying that it's, that it's here. On the 4th of July, 1982, after collapsing on the dance floor at the London Gay Club Heaven, Terry Higgins, a white gay man, was taken to St. Thomas's Hospital. He would become one of the first people in the UK to die of an AIDS-related illness. He was 37 years old. Before I'd met Terry, he'd been known as Fat Terry. When I met him, he was very slender. And um, very quickly, he went downhill. And it was just like, how the hell did that happen? Rupert Whittaker was Terry's lover. And there was no understanding of it. There was, there was, you know, I would go into the hospital to visit, well, the very first time he was in isolation. I had to look through a, a sort of a porthole in the door and the nurses were in full, uh, what we know is PPE with uh, double gloves, et cetera, et cetera. I wasn't even allowed in to see him, but I can remember him very clearly um, lying in bed and looking at him thinking, my God, that's not the person I know. He's, um, he was, yeah, he was really sick. And it was sudden, really sudden. And we just knew that this was going to be something, that it was going to affect us. I have a memory of hearing about it, and I remember being at school and seeing the Killer in the Village documentary and a cover of him, which had an image of men in test tubes. And I remember those two things when I'm kind of working out my own sexuality in my head, going, oh my gosh, this is happening, but it's not happening to me, it's far away. Nobody's having this conversation about this at all. And none of my partners, and I didn't have a lot of sexual partners, I had maybe three in that year, aren't talking about condoms, aren't presenting condoms as an option to me, because I don't think they're thinking about condoms at all either. I got an STI and it was just, right, you've got this. It was really upsetting when I got it because I never had that before, but I just took it on the chin. It's like, okay, well, this is what happens when you have sex. But around this time, you just get this sense of, it's like a creeping fog, you know? It's over there, but you can slowly see this mist coming into the room. And I remember being in my friend's flat and there was this palpable sense that something is happening. I thought it would literally, and I think a lot of us in that little small circle thought, this thing doesn't affect me, it doesn't affect us. It doesn't affect us black guys over here because we didn't know anybody. We didn't see anybody who, who had it. You know, this is white guys that were over there and they weren't us. In the next episode of We Were Always Here. They didn't want to know about black people. They didn't want to know about women. I remember them saying to us, look, it's a gay disease and we are gay and it's our disease. But I have to say though that another early memory that I have is of, you know, the advert 
with the tombstones and the leaflet that came through everybody's door. That also sticks out very, very, very vividly in my mind. We Were Always Here was presented by me, Mark Thompson. It was produced by Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistant was Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production.